Welcome to this exclusive mini-series, Unlocking Net Zero, hosted by Unlocking Ambition alumni and friend, Dr. Stephanie Terney-Brown. In this series, Dr. Stephanie interviews outstanding entrepreneurial founders from across Scotland, doing incredible things to help our net zero ambitions to become a reality. We know you'll enjoy listening in on this founder-to-founder conversation. We hope you'll be inspired by the innovative ways in which Scottish companies are revolutionising their own operations, leading the way in showing what Scotland is capable of as we transition to a net zero economy. As always, the views of our guests will not always reflect those of Unlocking Ambition or our partners. We welcome the breadth of opinions and approaches to tackling climate change. Not only can you enjoy their conversation today, but you can get involved too. Follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you and your story of how you are also unlocking net zero. Welcome to this Unlocking Net Zero podcast hosted by me, Dr. Stephanie Tereni-Brown from Clean Water Wave, one of the original Unlocking Ambition cohort. This series is exploring Scotland's most innovative founders of startups that are really delivering on net zero contributions. We're doing this in the lead up to the next UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, where a net zero carbon future, natural habitat protection, the financing of climate solutions and collaborative actions are four of the key priority areas. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Celia Davis, co-founder and CEO of Omanos Analytics, a really interesting company that are doing something that probably most of us are unlikely to have a clue about. I think that's fair to say, Celia. They're using satellite data about the planet that's commonly referred to as Earth Observation Data, or EO, to understand changing conditions on land at sea. And they're working with charities and community groups to help validate issues where environmental and social injustices have occurred. Have I got that right, Celia? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, So maybe what's useful is, um, because I actually don't have a background in space technology or Earth Observation Data Analysis, um, I can maybe walk us through a little bit how this how this all began. Um, yeah, and the problem that would that be great because also your I mean your background as you say has almost nothing to do with what you're actually doing now. But that's that's interesting in and of itself because you're you're probably giving it a, a you know an interesting twist and also helping those of us like me who are not data scientists understand what that data is able to do and to provide us to. Exactly. And that's really often how I see myself is, is a bit of a translator between, mm-hmm. between the, the people doing the analysis and the people who want to apply those insights. Um, and I guess, yeah, the, the story behind Amanos, um, it kind of it came out of my previous job in humanitarian development. Um, and what I was doing there was working with journalists and human rights activists in kind of hostile and remote regions, mostly the former Soviet Union. So, you know, kind of getting investigative footage out of uh, places like Russia and Azerbaijan, and then um, kind of working with producers um, in Germany and the UK um, to be able to kind of, um, yeah, to publish stories about about some of the things that um, weren't necessarily being reported by state-owned media in those areas. Um, And I kept getting really frustrated at how hard and how dangerous it was um, and how expensive to access uh, some of the information that we needed to properly evidence um, the stories and 
some of what we were doing were kind of, you know, different types of environmental reporting, um, you know, things like, um, yeah, water sources that spanned um, borders in conflict affected regions. Um, and I was kind of complaining about this to, to my friend and, and now my business partner, Steve, who's a space systems engineer um, in a pub in Edinburgh. Um, and he kind of said like, oh, well, you know, have you have you looked at, at the satellite data um, to see if you can, you know, look at things like algal blooms to look at the types of pollution. Uh, and then if you know what type of pollution it is, then maybe you can look at, you know, which factories are on which bits of the border and things like that. Um, and that was basically the the seed of the company. Um, so we spent, you know, the next little while kind of thinking, well, you know, does surely surely someone else is doing this mm-hmm. um and actually what we really identified as um as one of the main barriers was sort of accessibility and, and awareness um so there's all this remarkable data that's freely available and free to use but you have to know what it's telling you um and i think that's that's where we see us is is it's translating the data insights um into something that can be applied to to be in a, in a way that is meaningful for for, for people um, on the ground basically um, and the other the kind of the other side of that problem is that um, you know there are amazing companies amazing organizations and um, doing really powerful kind of high level data processing and huge data sets um, but they don't necessarily have access to communities um, to validate some of what that's saying you know I think in we often talk about, um, you know, satellite data, like it tells us objective truth. And, and actually it's, it's really, it's really hard to know what story it's telling. It could be telling any number of stories and what we need is multiple data sources uh, to kind of synthesize those and be like, right, well, based on this testimony from these people who are living in this community, based on, you know, this set of documentation from, um, you know, the developers of say uh, a geothermal plant or a mining um some mining infrastructure combined with the earth observation data you know it's it's never it's it's never a kind of single truth right it's you've got to pull together these different sources um we've also done some experimentation um you know with um with ground sensors so looking at things like noise pollution water pollution um air pollution to again um it's, I often think of these kind of different sorts of data sources as they're all, you know, they're all unreliable in their own ways, but what's really valuable is they're unreliable in different ways. Um, so there's this kind of like really important mutual assurance that goes on between them. And yeah, I guess where we see ourselves is bringing together those different data sets and, and sort of bouncing them off against each other to, um, to build a kind of more comprehensive and accurate picture of what's happening. So there's quite an interesting story in that partly on the value value of conversing with interesting people right and networking because otherwise you guys would never be where you are I don't know how you knew Steve beforehand but but presumably you have mutual interest through something else and then you know it's this you know you saw a kind of a requirement actually and a need for something where both of your skills were very that there was kind of that crossover again exactly exactly yeah, and I really what I'm hearing from kind of how you work is actually that there's a triangulation about what you do. It's translation and triangulation. It's kind exactly. of bringing together these different data sets to be able to tell a story that's actually irrefutable. That it, on an, in and of themselves, either the data sets maybe might not make any sense or could be 
used to tell a story in a particular way. But actually what you're trying to do is to combine the data sets, but actually also bring in the people element of it by working in conjunction with communities. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, exactly. And some of these smaller cases, whether that's, um, you know, the livelihood of a community that might only be, you know, it might be fewer than 5,000 people, um, but actually the encroachment on a bit of their land has meant that the livelihood of that community has been completely wiped out. Um, and there are, you know, there are different types of recourse. So, you know, we've used our, we've kind of produced data and data analysis to be used um, in arbitration cases, you know, for example, where the world, the world bank's kind of commercial investment arm has been involved because they've been an investor in, um, in the development. Um, and we've been able, you know, we've been able to um, help out putting together slide decks to just, and often it's quite simple. It's, it's look that, you know, here's what the community looked like before. We can use different types of analysis to look at, you know, um, different types of cropland um, to show the change over time. And, you know, when you kind of overlay that with the timeline of, of the development of, you know, say a mine, um, that's the sort of the legal evidence, the sort of traceable um, like audit really of, of land use over time. Mm-hmm. And it's telling the story of the community, of their land, and you know, of the of the development um, of you know any kind of given in industrial development that's been happening over time, um, and then looking at how you're looking at things, the sort of secondary impacts of that. Um, so that's things like okay, right, they could you know you can't you can no longer grow papaya trees on this land. What what does that mean in practice? What does that mean? Well, it means that um, that's a loss of income for X number of families per year to a total value of this, this, um, or, you know, this road is now blocked by, um, this road is no longer usable by a community because um, the mining company are using it. Well, that means that that community can't easily travel to a neighboring community to go and trade and like really kind of understanding from people what what it means. Um, And that's this kind of real focus, I guess, for us on applied insights. and you so know the real nitty gritty then of, of yeah. you know people's lives on the ground and how what you're seeing from that from literally from a satellite picture is exactly. able to tell you and how that what that means to you know the person on the ground yeah that's exactly it and I think because I worked for a while on yeah with 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 journalists with reporters um and in media that kind of narrative aspect of it is really important to me and I also think kind of thinking about um yeah, thinking about COP and Glasgow and all of that, the the way that we, the way that we kind of bring people along with us is is mostly through stories. Like I think it can sound a little bit hokey to say that, but the way that we think and the way that we understand the world is through is through stories. It's through pattern recognition, and if we can build a, if we can build a narrative that takes what those images are saying, you know, of the of kind of uncontrollable wild um wildfires of um you know kind of melting ice of all of that the reason those images are terrifying is because they're tied to a story um but until we kind of do the legwork in telling that story really effectively i think there's always just going to be a little bit of a gap like a, a gap that's bigger bigger or smaller depending on who you're talking to i guess Yeah, and I think it comes back to that point you made earlier about the importance of doing the translation work and the data, because actually what you're doing from the storytelling aspect is building in 
relatability, but also an empathy, actually, mm. to what you're saying, that I think too often when we see, particularly with climate change data, as we see a bunch of graphs that, you know, are either going sky high or rocketing downwards, neither of which usually tell us, you know, anything very much, unless you can really understand what that data means. But to the, to the layperson, it doesn't mean a huge amount. But when you can uh, tell that data in a way that means something to to me and to you to a you know a normal person in quote unquote then it begins to have power right and I think what we see from a climate change perspective is that too often um, a lot of the conversation is very kind of high data high politics and it doesn't mean an awful lot to the average person yeah I think that's really true and I think actually it's very interesting having this conversation now after, you know, 18 months of, of everyone in the world having to confront like some really important data sets that haven't always been very easy to pass, you know, COVID case rates, hospitalization rates, death rates. And, you know, every, every kind of major media outlet has, you know, a standard bar where they're, where they're giving all of those, all of those data points every day. And it, it took me a long time to understand like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? How do I tie that to the government guidelines to how I'm going to, you know, make sure that I'm minimizing risk to myself and risk to other people. Um, and so I think that does feel like something we've all been grappling with is mm -hmm. big data and, and me and my kind of everyday life in a way that just wasn't true before COVID, not to make everything about COVID because I feel that's what <laughs> we all do at the moment, but it does, it does seem. I guess we've been bombarded, haven't we, yeah, with statistics exactly. uh, over the past 18 months. And in many ways, I guess that's given us um, kind of license to, to perceive ourselves as armchair statisticians, but, <laughs> but it kind of lends uh, maybe an interest and, and credence to, to perhaps big data sets that maybe there wasn't, necessarily there in terms of the public consciousness um pre-covid anyway but i think one of the other interesting things about using earth observation data in the space that you're in is that you know when we look at kind of weather and climate change monitoring systems by and large they only tend to cover like 30 percent of earth systems whereas the satellites are giving us information about you know parts of the world that we don't we might not have monitoring systems on the ground so i was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about something about working with maybe the most vulnerable communities um, or certainly communities in the world that are most vulnerable to, to climate change um, and how you see your work kind of fitting into to those stories. Yeah, absolutely. So something we're working on at the moment um, is kind of building up, working on kind of environmental resilience indicators that are particularly relevant um, for um, kind of in, camps um, for kind of refugees and internally displaced peoples um, because um, the kind of locations of those camps are obviously, you know, very much at the behest of, of, the, of the host government. Um, but the ways in which, say, the UNHCR um, or the IOM are managing those camps along, alongside kind of government. For people that aren't familiar, that's the UN Refugee Agency and, and the Migration Institute, right, for the... Um, for the yeah, UN. the International Organization for Migration. Um, exactly. Thank, thank you. Um, <laughs> Sometimes we get so used to using acronyms, we forget that other people might not be from POFA. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what's really important um, for them, and obviously, you know, there's a lot of this going on already. I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that whether the first to thought of, of this at all um, is understanding 
what what kind of programming um say in terms of um in terms of agriculture um is going to be most relevant um for a given location and what types of vulnerabilities kind of might might be experienced so there's you know already loads of work going on you know looking at something like sort of floodplains like right this this area is going to be particularly vulnerable um to climate change but to kind of your point around um how this data can be used um to protect um some of the most vulnerable communities um at the moment i do think that's that's you know climate climate refugees and conflict refugees um thinking about like okay well what does what does really what does meaningful relocation really look like and how can we make sure that we are bringing to bear um yeah all of all of the kind of all of the data um to inform this and to that point I guess um one of the things that I'm really curious about two things actually is how you get the data and who satellites you know who yeah, presumably you're not just launching satellites to get to get the data you're utilizing somebody else's but then also thinking about who your clients are who you're I mean ultimately obviously you're kind of giving voice to to people who who are not often heard but there's there's like a, a big kind of organizational ish bit here right about who your actual clients are and kind of what their end goals are as well so maybe let's pick up the where do we get the data from who satellites just give us the nuts and nuts and bolts or on that yeah absolutely so we um we really focus on um on free data basically Mm -hmm. um because there's so much there and that means that we can do more work for more people um basically so we use um the eu the kind of yeah the european data the uh, copernicus um sentinel satellites um we use the us landsat data um and yeah, we, we do draw on kind of commercial data sources where, where we need to, if, for example, there's cloud cover um, or, you know, there's a certain type of analysis we need to do. Um, but we really, really focus on, um, on using that free data. Um, and I think it goes back to my earlier point um, just around how much data that is available. Um, and, and I think it mostly, it, it does feel underutilized I think I think broadly like not you know not by not necessarily by governments or UN agencies but by um by kind of people more on the downstream end of things um whether Mm -hmm. that's private sector or NGOs because that is kind of broadly a a lack of yeah lack of awareness lack of understanding um and I can say this as someone who completely lacked awareness and understanding of, of how it could be used to inform the work I was I was doing um and to your question about kind of, yeah, who are the sort of, who are the customers here? Um, so we've worked with, as you say, we've worked with communities, we've worked with kind of international NGOs um, who are representing communities, um, but we've also worked with governments, um, worked closely um, with the Kenyan government last year, um, looking at the impact of geothermal um, power plants to kind of use satellite data to help inform kind of risk mitigation and environmental and social impact assessments, um, and 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 with space agencies. So with the UK Space Agency, with the European Space Agency, um, again really focusing on um, how space assets um, better be used for kind of for ground applications. Um, Interesting and no, kind of no plans to launch our own satellites. <laughs> a lot a lot of people are doing that very well. And do you see in those in those sectors then when you're talking about a lack of how do you how do you if they don't understand kind of how to use the data sets how do you almost go about getting 
getting your clients on board? How do you how do you acquire your clients? Is it through kind of personal networks, through the work that you did before and kind of telling them, guys, there's all this data out there and we can help add credence to your stories. How do you how do you go about sort of from, I guess, from a marketing and customer acquisition perspective? Yeah, I mean, that, that is more or less kind of a, a, exactly it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I through through my previous work in international development, um, there were, yeah, there were there were lots and lots of people I knew who were doing the sort of work that I was doing. And I, I knew they weren't using satellite data. Um, and since then, we branched out also kind of into um yeah, people who are doing sort of legal representation work, um, as well as the kind of more investigative side. Um, and then something we've we've developed through kind of building building relationships with um, with the European and UK Space Agency is the kind of governmental work um, and looking at how um, Earth observation data, satellite data um, can help inform kind of policy and, and planning um, and really integrating that um, in a way that's that's useful. So, you know, environmental and social impact assessments are, are one example. Um, so what, what we did in Kenya was look at how um, how earth observation data could be kind of integrated into that process. So, you know, you've got, you've got a baseline, right? How did this look at the beginning? Um, how is this going? How, how did this look after three months of, you know, this development, this concession was granted by the government, you know, to do this sort of work? Um, and so using it both from a kind of ad hoc monitoring perspective um, and from and yeah, to play a kind of compliance function, I suppose. And that's important both for um, the government, but also, you know, the, the developer, them, the developers themselves, like they it's really important from a kind of corporate social responsibility perspective to say, like, no, we we are do we did our due diligence. Here's what we're doing. And we've got a kind of we've got the evidence to back it up. Um, I think certainly, you know, if, if I were running a large infrastructure company, um, that's, I would see that as a, as a real risk mitigation. Um, yeah, that's there. really interesting because one of the things that we see in the water sector is a growing interest from financing organisations. So whether that's the insur- insurance companies or banks, not necessarily looking at the end goal in terms of water pollution, but actually what we see them as from a risk perspective, trying to encourage their clients how to mitigate their own risk from climate change perspectives. Um, And so actually what you're saying in that case is that you've got this kind of almost corporate accountability role as well in, in, I guess it's the two sides of the same coin. In one, one hand, it's potentially bringing corporate actions to account working with community groups and maybe governments but on the other side it's actually working with the corporates to showcase how can they build in and use existing evidence to showcase you know the role that they're doing and to make sure that their impact is what they think it is exactly yeah no that's that's brilliantly summarized and um it's it's i i suppose about um seeing the role of of the of the data and the type of kind of um, analysis that we're doing is not just like, yes, it's, it's kind of useful and important to retrospectively map harm, but, you know, I think we can be a bit more ambitious and look at kind of predictive harm and, and mitigation most importantly. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I guess in many senses, you are just kind of take the focus a little bit more domestically at the moment. I mean, you really kind of hit the brief of what Scottish Enterprise and the Unlocking Ambition team had when they're looking for purposeful businesses. And that's kind of businesses that are really 
they've got a kind of really strong social um ethical maybe an environmental heart to them and what they're doing um I guess in terms of your kind of engagement with NGOs that has to come very you know that's at the kind of forefront of, of what you do um but are you set up as a social enterprise or have you been are you a B Corp kind of is there a sort of financial mechanism actually which you can kind of demonstrate your purposefulness it's a great question so we were a business um, and one of the reasons for setting up as a business is because I had spent uh, nearly 10 years working um, with and for NGOs mm-hmm. and I wanted more flexibility. Um, I wanted to see an idea and and just go for it instead of going through a kind of, you know, and it's this is no criticism. It's how it's how these things have to work. Um, you know, a kind of budget realignment, um, multiple sign-offs. And, you know, by the time you get to that six months later, actually that idea either isn't relevant anymore or someone else has done it. Um, and to have that agility um, and to have the flexibility so that if if someone came to us and said, we really need this support um, and, you know, we we run a kind of, inter- you know, we invest, we invest um kind of part of the income into R&D and into kind of subsidizing um, work with communities and NGOs. So we're not, yeah, we're not, we sort of, we operate on a social enterprise model, I suppose, without being registered as a social enterprise. Um, Yeah. So So it's almost like cherry picking kind of what you've understood from the charity world really didn't fit where you were going with the initial idea. And you needed that flexibility and the, I guess, being fleet of foot, actually, that that being a business really affords you. Um, but then also kind of taking the the ethos, maybe, of the social enterprise model and being able to then subsidise your costs when you're working with community groups. And then also, of course, investing in your R&D portfolio. Exactly. Yeah, I think we we really wanted to be able to to choose where where we invested and to be able mm-hmm. to identify, you know, something that really was important to support and I think the other side of it was wanting to to really challenge ourselves to 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 make this profitable actually to you know in the sense that that to to push ourselves so that that money could be reinvested into kind of some some real meaningful support Mm -hmm. and how far along are you on the on that progress how how long has the company been established what's the kind of interest been from investors is that kind of purposeful business uh, I guess me- method or model that's kind of at the heart of what you're doing has that been really important to the investors that you've got on board so far we don't have investors um mm-hmm. and I think for us that's that's part of the medium term goal but um I think and so we've been we've been um going about three years and I think in lots of ways, you know, it's been such a learning curve. Um, I never, ever in a million years thought that I would start a business. Um, and I think we're still in the process of figuring out, like, where can we, you know, where can we really, really add value? You know, this is, there are so many people doing such amazing work. We're not really interested in, in doing that sort of next to them. Um, we want to really focus on, right, the way that our services and our products um, can be used to kind of augment existing data processing, you know. So, for example, through being able to gather that community data in kind of very robust, very effective um, ways that can then be integrated with larger EO data processing and to really bring to bear that understanding of the data synthesis 
um, rather than, you know, sort of necessarily seeking to compete with the, um, with the big data processes. Um, so I think it's a sort of, it's a medium term goal to, to look at investors and from what, from what, you know, for example, all of the conversations that we had during the Unlocking Ambition um, program and the conversations that I've had since with, with peers, um, when we've kept, kept those engagements going is that it is something that's interesting to investors right now um, because they're looking, they're, they're thinking about shareholders and they're thinking what, what's important to shareholders right now. Um, you know, where are, where are people looking to invest, um, you know, like, po- you know, there are popular pension portfolios that are focused on ethical investment, things like that. And so I think that's, that's certainly, um, yeah, a kind of growing interest. And of course, not everyone is going to care about that. And that's, that's okay. I think that is often a kind of a question <laughs> I've had as well. You know, this is all, this is all sort of premised on the idea that, you know, companies want to behave ethically and all of this. And, and, and what, and what do you think about that? Like, what about all of these examples of kind of corporate malfeasance? And I suppose my response to that is like, well, of course, some people aren't going to care. <laughs> But there are a lot of people and a growing number of people who are really, really interested in doing business ethically, um, doing business in a climate sensitive way um, and investing in kind of sectors and companies that are doing that. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting path for the future of actually impact reporting in a corporate world, because I think to date, a lot of it, a lot of it's been a bit nefarious. It's maybe been a little bit um, bock tixy, maybe um, a there's always that kind of fear that you're greenwashing um and maybe actually what a company like what you guys can do or companies like you can do is add add data to color in some of that some of those dots or or really even to pin those dots actually i think that that's yeah that's definitely true and i think the other thing is um that causing environmental and social harm is really really expensive if you're (laughs) I mean, that to me is like the the easiest argument to make. You know, if there are kind of lots and lots of cases of um, it happens kind of, you know, so say take the mining sector where, you know, there's sort of not necessarily um, the due diligence that one might expect, um, not the careful monitoring that we'd hope for. And then all of a sudden you have a tailings dam collapse and, it you know it it destroys communities it from from yeah it destroys communities and then what are you going to do if you're the host government there you're going to revoke that concession and then the knock on impl- implications for for you know you as a company if you've been if you've been charged with managing that well you're going to see your share prices really drop and there are yeah I mean we've all seen examples of that um, and so I think you meant you know you talked about insurance earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, risk management, risk mitigation, um, all of these kind of large industrial development types of things, if, if I worked there, the thing I would be most concerned about would be managing that risk, um, you know, financial risk, uh, kind of ethical risk, reputational risk, they all, they all do tie together. It's not like kind of corporate social responsibility is this, is a, is really, I don't think anymore a nice to have. Yeah, and absolutely. I think it, it, absolutely what we're seeing in the in the corporate world, I think, is much more of an integration of that from being kind of stuck out in the corner mm. uh, room that was, you know, maybe adjacent or or embedded in the marketing team to actually how can we get this embedded yeah. in every single aspect of our of our business? 
Exactly, exactly. Um, so what does the, you know, the COP26, what does it mean for, for you as a company and you personally? Are you involved in any of the, um, any of the proceedings um, or is it kind of much more of a you'll be keeping an eye on what the policy papers are from it and, and kind of utilising um, that to kind of springboard your, your business? Yeah, so one of the things that we'll definitely be doing is um, kind of showcasing showcasing how satellite data um, can tell stories. Um, so we've been kind of working on, um, we've got a kind of a, a miniature like, program we call Space Snippets, uh, which is just sort of how you can, um, how you can, yeah, what, what you can see from space. So we've got, you know, a bunch of different themes like cities and agriculture. Um, and it can show, it, you know, it shows anything, um, anything from, you know, the impact of wildfires in a kind of quick and easy to understand way to things like actually how in like very arid locations, it's it's really remarkable how sort of human ingenuity has managed to, you know, start, start growing things. So a real range of things and, um, got, you know, some very talented data analysts with us who... Um, I don't know, they actually, you know, they can make them look incredibly beautiful, actually. Mm -hmm. like I'm, always, I'm always, you know, with different, with different um, kind of wave band combinations, um, some of the images are just, are just stunning. Um, so from a kind of purely comms and like public engagement perspective, that feels very important. And we'll be kind of working, yeah, working with the universities um, on things like outreach. Um, what we'll also be doing is, um, is launching, um, we've been working on, um, for the past few months, um, a sort of ethical framework for how we involve communities in data collection. Um, and that's everything from um, data privacy and data protection and data ownership um, to sort of do no harm and uh, conflict impact assessment and kind of transparency and consent. Um, and so we'll be kind of sharing, we want to make that a really kind of basically an open source document so that anyone who's working with communities, especially when that's being done remotely, um, has access to, you know, sort of a set, a set of principles and, and some practical guidelines um, for, how, for how community data can be effectively integrated into, into processing work. Um, yeah, and aside from that, um, we'll be, yeah, kind of working with working with all of the kind of fantastic Scottish space companies um, to yeah showcase our work, showcase their work, um, and it's it's something that I didn't necessarily know about when we started when we started Amanos, but there's such a thriving community, um, and it's yeah I think I think the Scottish space sector is something is something really quite special, um, and so having having this in Glasgow feels like a, a real moment for, for us as a, as a sector to kind of show, show what we've been doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's super cool. But I mean, partly because I didn't even really know there was a Scottish space sector, if I'm completely honest, and I cannot be alone in that. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a really vibrant yeah. community doing some really interesting work in the space. But actually also, you know, there's a really um, vibrant international development sector in Scotland that probably doesn't get enough um, attention for all the work that they do because you know a lot of them are very small um small ngos and, and very small charities but actually kind of what you're talking about is almost kind of linking linking business linking um you know these space scientists and these ngos um and then again kind of working with i mean probably what most people understand as data is just gdpr regulations and now post brexit what that means for their own companies but you're kind of taking that in, in essence that kind of 
theoretical framework, it sounds like, in terms of the, just the ethics of collecting data and what you do with it. But then also bringing in some from the international development sector, the work that they've really spearheaded, probably post controversy, really, around safeguarding um, and, and kind of how you how you do that work and, and what managing that data means um, for you and the people that you work with. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I guess to kind of sum up, I'd just like to ask you really, like, how optimistic are you um, from the work that you're doing um, in terms of, you know, Scotland and, and the world being able to achieve what we want from a climate change perspective? I mean, you, you work with some really interesting data, but also some really interesting communities and NGOs. Do you see a promising trend or for you, is it a very negative one? That's, that's such a difficult question. I mean, it's an excellent question and it's also such a difficult one. I mean, I, I, I think of myself as, as an optimist, um, but I think it, it is also really important that we're, that we're holding our governments to account because it's, it's sort of, and that we as a, you know, as, as a sort of private sector are holding ourselves to account in terms of how we run our businesses in, um, in a kind of with with net zero kind of at, at the heart of that, um, and all taking responsibility. I suppose. I mean, if I think we have an opportunity now, I suppose is what I would say. We have an opportunity, and that opportunity is not going to last forever. Um, but it's hard for me to know what it will take. Um, you know, we've had a year of wildfires. We've had a you know what what is it going to take for people to take to take this seriously I suppose what I am really heartened by um is that the children and teenagers that I speak to now um are much much more aware and much more engaged I think you know I think back to myself at that age and you know the sorts of the sorts of things that we were talking about was like, oh shut the you know turn the light off when you leave the room reduce reuse recycle um and you know recycling was the solution to everything and I think you know I think though and you know in a few years those people are going to be investing uh and joining the workforce and and all of that and that that gives me that gives me a lot of optimism um but yeah I think that's a bit that's probably a bit of a woolly answer and I think Maybe I am a bit. Maybe I am a bit more anxious than than I can really bring myself to say. I think, in all honesty. <laughs> well, I think personally, I think the work that you're doing, actually, from a what it lends to itself from a cross boundary and cross border approach, given given what you do and how you operate, that has to give us an optimistic future, because we cannot tackle climate change from within the you know within a nation state it just doesn't that's not how it that's not how it works we have to think collaboratively and across borders and across boundaries and I think the work that you guys are doing is exactly the type of work that needs to be done in order for us to achieve that so I think we'll probably leave it leave it on that uh that's the answer I should have I yeah, should have on that optimistic I'm gonna take that <laughs> <laughs> I shall say a huge thank you Celia um for joining us um, and we all really look forward to seeing what you guys are up to next. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers.